Hello, and welcome to Voices of Digital Health, a podcast which aims to facilitate conversation on topics related to the Commission's work on the governance of digital health for the protection of health futures. I'm your host, Brian Lehan Wong, Youth Officer of the Atlanta and Financial Times Commission on Governing Health Futures 2030, Growing Up in a Digital World, which is exploring the convergence of digital health, artificial intelligence, and other frontier technologies with universal health coverage to support the attainment of the third sustainable development goal. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Corey Ann Barras Tapia, Project Officer for the Commission. Corey, do you want to introduce yourself? Thank you very much, Brian, and a warm welcome to all our listeners. My name is Corey. I'm a master's student in international development at the Graduate Institute of Geneva. And I'm also working as a project assistant for the Lancet and Financial Times Commission. This episode will center on how digital transformations in health can support the achievement of UHC and SDG3, with a particular focus on mental health and adolescent health and well-being. We're delighted to have Governing Health Futures 2030 Commissioner, Professor Miranda Wolpert with us today. Professor Miranda Wolpert heads up mental health at the Wellcome Trust. She leads a funding program to find the next generations of treatment and approaches to help create a world where no one is held back by mental health problems. By bringing together expertise across science, innovation, and society, the Mental Health Challenge area is speeding up research to understand mental health better and to develop treatments and approaches that are more effective and more personalized. Miranda is also a clinician policy advisor and professor in evidence-based research and practice at UCL. Miranda, do you want to briefly tell our listeners a bit more about yourself, your work, and your interest in the topic of today's episode? Thank you. Very pleased to be here. For people who don't know, Wellcome Trust is a big research funder, and our ambition is to try and help science solve the great health challenges of our time. I have the privilege of leading the work on mental health, alongside colleagues leading on infectious disease and climate and health. We also have a large um, focus on discovery research and seeing how that can affect health challenges. In terms of the topic we're here to discuss today, we're particularly interested in thinking how we can make best use of digital innovation to really transform the world in relation to mental health. So really interested and excited to have this conversation today. That's great. Thanks so much, Miranda. We're also joined by Toulouse Dove Francis. Toulouse is a current board member at the World Federation for Mental Health, the former CEO of Mentally Aware Nigeria, and he uses his YouTube podcast and blog to advance mental health. He's a very sought-after TV and radio guest speaker, as well as the author of several books. Toulouse, do you want to briefly tell our listeners more about yourself, your work, and your interest in the topic of today's episode? Thank you, Brian. Hello, everyone. My name is Toulouse Francis. As a youth myself, I'm very passionate about youth and mental health and access to care. I'm very much a lover of tech and digital health. So uh, I've also explored virtual reality therapy and accessibility in the course of my work. So I'm hoping that this conversation creates courage and for people to realize that mental health is very critical and very key. Thanks so much, Toulouse. So I think we'll kick off with a question for both of you. In your own words, could you tell us what your definition of mental health is? 
So we thought long and hard about our ambition. And the reason we came up with the ambition around no one held back by mental health problems is because we see mental health not as a state of constant happiness or constant contentment, but a state in which people are able to go ahead with their goals and are not being disabled by mental health problems such as anxiety or extreme distress or extreme disturbance. So I think that for me, positive mental health is about a state of having the normal range of human emotions that includes sadness, worry, and unhappiness, but that actually being able to get on with your life and feel enough positivity to be able to seek your own goals. From my own end, I would say mental health is a state of being healthy internally in the sense that it helps you project your behavior and your attitude positively. That gives us a very interesting overview of the definition of mental health and bring us to the next question. What role do technologies and digital transformation play in mental health? I believe so much in technology and I'm a fan of technology and I believe with technology we can do much more, save time, save costs in terms of healthcare delivery, a whole lot of solutions bringing up day in, day out medications being delivered to people in their houses once there is a doctor's prescription instead of walking to the pharmacy. Technology has come to play a vital role in healthcare, for example. Virtual reality therapy could be wherever and be able to help a person who has a phobia for certain things, say heights, for example. I believe telehealth has come to stay. And we saw much more of that during the COVID-19 pandemic. So for me, technology has become an integral part of our lives in terms of healthcare and something everyone should embrace because of the time it saves, the speed it brings to us, this opportunity to actually do much more and achieve much more without even living where we are. It has its own challenges, but then the advantages might as well outweigh the disadvantages. I would agree with all of that and would add that there are also real opportunities for technology in terms of advancing our understanding. So I think we're only just starting to learn what technology and uh, digital developments can do for us, both in terms of things that Toulouse was talking about in terms of interventions, both telehealth and also very innovative interventions where people use avatars and other things to address mental health issues. But as a scientific funder, we're particularly interested also in, in digital collection of data that can empower young people and others to know more about their own mental health and also help researchers understand the unique trajectories of individuals' mental health problems and routes to recovery. So I think there are real opportunities here for us to make use of data in new ways, drawing on the principles of the Commission in terms of digital equity and digital solidarity to ensure that the people who are using those digital technologies are also in control in ways that make sense for them and can help their recovery. With COVID-19, we've seen a lot more contact with the digital world, especially in our day-to-day lives. What impacts has this had on the mental health of people, particularly young people? What are the risks? So I think this is an interesting topic and one that is much debated. I think the jury is still out on exactly what the positives and negatives of the immersion in the digital world that most of us have now, and particularly young people. I think it's easy to fall into a state of complete panic about it, but it's also not necessarily appropriate to fall into a state of it's all fantastic as well. 
I think there are a number of interesting researchers and thought leaders looking at this and trying to disentangle what's good and what's less good. And I think it may vary from group to group. Some groups may find aspects of it really helpful. Others may struggle. I think the main thing is there's no one clear, this is terrible, this is brilliant. It is like everything else. It's got aspects to it that are facilitative and aspects to it that may, if used to excess, may not be helpful. I quite agree with what Miranda said. Yes, we may look at the disadvantages, but in the end, uh, I think it's look at the goal or the end result. We hear a lot about um, social media disadvantages, but people still do a whole lot of positive things with social media. So it's a function of how well do you use it, how long do you use it, what do you use it for. With the use of every tool and software comes the question, what is it for? How long should it be? It's the same where when you're prescribing your dosages for a specific period of time. So at the end of the day, it's a function of you using it for the reason and the purpose for which you should use it. But when we get to focus so much on the disadvantage, we should change people or those who would use it for the right reasons and who would gain what really needs to be gained. So focus on what good does this thing bring if used properly and then preach or talk about it being used properly so they can gain the benefits of it. As the commission's work is very much focused on youth, what would you say are the main mental health challenges facing young people in today's world? And also, in what ways can the use of digital technologies help to protect and support young people's mental health? In terms of mental health, I think what I've noticed in the youth myself, you have um, anxiety, stress, panic attack depression that stems from various things, absence of work, unemployment rates, financial challenges, family issues, disability. So for the youth, as you grow up the ladder in terms of age, some of these things persist while some other ones come up. And I think that a lot of these things can be attended to with digital technology. So talk about telehealth, for example, where you're, wherever you are, and you could easily message a professional, say, hey, I need to talk to someone. And that happened. So you can't overestimate the importance or the advantage of digital technology when it comes to health. And so it's a tool that everyone needs to employ. WhatsApp, Google Meet, Zoom, WhatsApp chat. So at the end of the day, it's something that everyone is encouraged to embrace so that wherever you are, you're able to access care without necessarily living where you are. Just to add to that really helpful and comprehensive overview. I think what some of the research is showing us is that there is increased rates of depression and anxiety in some groups, particularly young women. We need to be aware that this younger generation is also the most peaceful, cooperative and least disruptive of many generations that we have seen. So it's a mixed picture when we look globally in terms of mental health problems in this generation. And in many ways, the younger generation are facing, as Luz was saying, so many challenges with such grace and resilience, as well as being more open to talking about the anxiety and depression that comes with that. There's no doubt that there's so many different stakeholders and disciplines that are necessary to strengthen mental health. It's incredibly intersectional and, and intersectoral. In the youth statement and call for action that Toulouse and I had the pleasure of working on alongside many other youth who co-created it, one of the main concerns that was raised was around health as a human right and mental health being one of the most important health priorities. For our listeners who might not have yet read these, who are the key stakeholders in this space and what is their role in shaping the mental health of young people? 
I think you're absolutely right. This is one for everyone. I think it takes a global community to support mental health. So the key stakeholders include the providers of healthcare within medical and healthcare systems, but they're not the only people that are relevant here. So wider policymakers, those who are informing economic policy, but also educators and the workplace have huge roles to play here, both in terms of supporting mental health, but also in terms of joining the agenda of trying to work out what is the best ways of supporting mental health as a public health good and for individuals. So I think that there are many people that need to be involved in this initiative. So I would agree and also add that when it comes to healthcare, I'm one of the very strong voice when it comes to including mental health care in the primary health care system. So really it takes an entire system to actually make mental health care what it should be from the local to, to the federal. It's something that involves or that should involve every individual irrespective of the space in which you operate, the institution, from the political to the religious to the workplace. So I do think that we cannot rule out the fact that there are tools that are needed. We are across the sea having this conversation. This last technology. Technology has given us those tools. It's led for us to really use them. So what are the gaps in research you have found on mental health that must need to be addressed? So for example, I'm a person with lived experience when it comes to mental health and you realize that because of the access to Google, there's a tendency for people to rush to Google and they just type something there because they feel that they're behaving in a certain way. And the first response or the first um, article, they click on it and they swallow it, whether the information is correct or not, as long as it appeals to their emotions, to what they think they are experiencing. So I feel like we need more evidence-based articles. We need to look beyond the books and come to examine people. But I think one thing that really needs to be emphasized upon is people reading the right thing from the right place and at the right time and having someone to share their thoughts with. I think it's interesting you talk about the gaps that you see in terms of needing greater evidence. And I completely agree that in terms of looking for that evidence, we've got to look beyond the normal suspects. And that actually at the moment in the field, we have some amazing research going on, but it's not connected or brought together. And so people are often being offered treatments that are based more on advocacy than on scientific evidence. And so as Toulouse has indicated, we need here a collaboration between those with lived experience in mental health problems who have expertise around what that experience is like and what is relevant for them, what is holding them back and what they want from life. And those with expertise in research methodology who have expertise about how can we try and investigate things, what research evidence can we draw on, how can we build that to find ways to help. And then a collaboration with those who might implement either policy or practice, whether they are clinicians or other policy makers who can actually implement different things in the world that will actually then bring that evidence to bear. One of the things that we are working on currently is trying to look at the gaps outside of the two main ways of helping medication and talking therapies, both of which are really important and we are commissioning and doing more research on those. In addition, we wanted to widen our scope and range to look at the other things that people have tried and may be effective, which might range from things around structural change right through to individual behaviors. For example, we've got a randomized control trial currently 
for post-traumatic stress disorder that involves using a digital game for 15 minutes as a way of changing how people lay down memories that might reduce intrusive thoughts. So there are different ways of addressing things at both an individual level and a societal level that might make a difference to mental health that need to be as rigorously addressed as a new drug or a talking therapy. So we want all of those things in terms of addressing our research gaps. And if we're going to take things forward, we need that coalition that includes centrally people with lived experience in mental health problems, those with research expertise, and those who are actually going to help implement different ways of helping. Back to the commission's work. Literacy is something that was focused on during the drafting of the youth statement. And there was a huge focus on consent, on data privacy, data solidarity, data ownership, and how personal data is used and by whom. I'd like to just unpack this a bit more. If you could share some concerns you might have and maybe some solutions. So when it comes to data privacy, it's something that needs to be handled with so much care, especially when it comes to mental health, because sharing this information with someone, uh, when already there is that fear, no stigmatization of people looking at you in a certain kind of way. Data privacy builds trust. If I know that my data is safe, with you, I'm able to open up more about what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through. But when that fear is there, then I hold back. And I think it's a call to put yourself in the shoes of this person. You do want your story to be shared without consent. And of course, how best you get consent without documentation? Terms and conditions of privacy statements are a bit lengthy and cumbersome. So can we make them easy to read? People need to be sure that our data is safe, that uh, whatever it is that they have shared with you, remains with you. Consent is key. Um, at this stage, it's irrespective of age, whether as, as an adult, adolescent, youth or a child, as long as it has to do with me giving you data, I need to give you consent. Trust me, in this line of work, one of the things that people ask me when they reach out the first time is, how can I trust you? And I tell them, oh, you are referred. I guess the other person trusts me that they referred you. So can people trust you with their data? People need to be sure that they can. I think there are a range of interesting trade-offs and tensions in trying to balance privacy with other aspects such as lack of burden and also advancing open science. And I think there's no simple way of managing those trade-offs. I think as Louise was saying, I completely agree this is about trust and people trusting what's going to happen to their data and how that will be used. And that those issues are particularly pertinent in sensitive data such as mental health. But to address that, then people do end up writing very long reams of information that then people don't necessarily want to read or can't absorb. Or if you're highly distressed and you're in a mental health context and the first thing someone gives you is a six-page document about your data is that really the most supportive thing that can be done to you at that moment so on the other hand if you don't do it then when do you do it and how can you make use of data and I suppose one of the things that preoccupies me as a mental health researcher is that the outcome of that can be that people will say okay this is just too difficult we won't collect data from mental from people around mental health or we won't make use of it and in their desire to protect people and protect people's privacy what we're doing is reducing equity for them in terms of research and research doesn't get done. So we don't then know what's the best treatment because we don't have the data to look at it. So I think there's a really tricky set of trade-offs here. One of the things we're, we're doing at the moment is we've commissioned a, a group of researchers under the auspices of Sage Bio Networks who are working in the UK, India and South Africa who are trying to set up governance models for collect mental health data from young people that look at different ways that young people can be involved. 
both as people who determine how their data is collected, what data is collected, and what's done with it, and looking at randomly allocating people to different extent of control over data to see how that affects uptake and amount of data collected. So it's an area that I think is worth exploring in and of itself. And I think the commission highlights some of these tensions and challenges. And I think we need to be as explicit as we can about them and involve, as the commission has done, young people themselves in thinking through how can we resolve these tensions? Because I think one of the other challenges sometimes is that people assume that they know what people feel or worry about without actually asking them what's most pertinent to you hit. Do you want most control over this aspect or that aspect? Is it most important to you who uses the data or what they use it for? Does it matter to you? Are there particular bits of data about yourself that you're less worried about? Are there some that you're more worried about? So I think there's a lot of nuance in this area and we're only just starting to work out what's the best way of talking about it and unpicking it in a way that we can then try and manage those tensions. We addressed a lot of interesting points. And as we know that you both have a wide experience on how to take care of mental health. So could you share with our listeners? Let me share three things. One is you need people around you. We're social beings. We are not wired to live in isolation. So you need people around you. You need to hang out with people. Secondly is you might need to make some lifestyle changes to what you do. Change your regular habits, go for a walk, for a stroll, to see new things. Just a change of environment, especially when you realize that so your mood or your state of mind is beginning to spiral down. And the third one is watch your thoughts and feelings. There is what I call the problem thinking, problem feeling, problem behavior metrics. What you think affects how you feel and it turn affects how you behave. So pay attention to your thinking, pay attention to when you realize that what you're thinking about is getting twisted and it's not your regular pattern. Don't let it get to the point of feeling. And even if it gets to the point of feeling, before it becomes a behavior, you exit, seek help as much as possible. What I would add to those really helpful suggestions is to remember that what works for you may be different from what works for someone else and that it may take you time to find what works for you and what works for you at one time may change at other times. I think there is a lot of evidence that suggests most of us will experience mental health problems at some point in our lives. The latest studies would suggest that before the age of 38, 87% of people have had some sort of mental health problems that are diagnosable on some scale or other. And most people find their ways through that. So you've got to find what's right for you, which may involve the sort of things that Clouse was talking about and may at some point involve seeking help from a professional. I would say if you are seeking help from a professional, then the main thing to remember is you may take time to find someone that's right for you there too. So don't feel like I've seen this person, that's the only option if that hasn't been quite right for you. There may be other options also. So I think it's about finding what's right for you and trying it and knowing that there's hope. Thank you to Luz and Miranda for joining us in this fascinating conversation. You've been listening to Voices of Digital Health. In this episode, we discussed how digital transformations in health can support the achievement of UHC and SDG3, with a particular focus on mental health and adolescent health and well-being. We encourage you to read our recently launched report, Policy Briefs, a Youth Statement and Call for Action, all of which can be found on our website, governinghealthfutures2030.org. You can also connect with us on Twitter, 
at GHFeatures2030 and on LinkedIn. This is your host, Brian Linghan Wong, signing off.